This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Hello, I'm Jonathan Dimbleby. Thanks for taking the time to download this edition of Any Questions from BBC Radio 4. We're at the seaside for this week's Any Questions, Bangor in Northern Ireland. Theresa May has been back and forth across the border between the North and the Republic, spending Friday evening in Dublin in talks with her Irish counterpart, Leo Varadkar. We're guests of West Church, at the heart of one of the largest Presbyterian communities on the island of Ireland. Indeed, the outgoing moderator of the Presbyterian Church, Charles McMullen, is the minister here. On our panel this evening, a minister of a different sort. Tobias Elwood is a defence minister, now an MP in Dorset. He saw service here during his time in the Royal Green Jackets. During the government consultation on whether soldiers should be protected from prosecution over potential crimes committed during the Troubles, he said, I knocked over a few milk bottles when I was in Northern Ireland, to put it lightly. I don't want somebody knocking on my door to ask questions of something that happened so many years ago. Although a barrister, Emma Little-Pengeli is unlikely to be involved in any such inquiries, and not just because she's forsaken the law for politics. She's Democratic Unionist MP for South Belfast, so one of the ten politicians on whom Theresa May's government relies for its survival. Speaking after the Northern Ireland parties met Mrs May, she called for the backstop to be scrapped. The Prime Minister must stand strong and press for the necessary legally binding changes, she says. We're in North Down. Chris Hazard is MP for Southdown, confusingly not the neighbouring constituency. You won't ever spot him in the Commons chamber, though. He and his fellow Sinn Féin MPs decline, as they always have done, to serve in what they regard as an alien parliament. Like Emma, he was a minister in the now-suspended Northern Ireland Assembly. Sinn Féin spokesperson on Brexit, he's warned if there's a hard border, there's a risk of civil disobedience. Mind you, Chris is a respecter of rules. He's an active member of the Gaelic Athletic Association. Alison McGovern may have some idea of what it feels like to be a political dissident. She chairs Progress, an organisation with which many former Blairites are associated. That's one reason she may not be loved by the present leadership. Another could be her passionate support for a fresh referendum on Brexit. It's time for Labour to get off the fence, she says. We need there to be a real difference between our party's policy and that of Theresa May. MP for Wirral South, her grandfather Peter McGovern wrote the anthem for the nearby city... In my Liverpool home. Something to sing about. Your Any Questions panel. And let's have our first question, please. Good evening. Uh, Dr Michael Steele. Do you think a hard Brexit will trigger a border poll in Ireland? This, of course, prompted uh, by the discussions over whether that might be something that uh, is a consequence of a hard border. Were such a border to be imposed, despite everybody saying they don't want there to be a hard border? Alison McGovern. Well, the reason why I have been so clear about the need for whatever happens with uh, Brexit that the only tolerable form of this, to me, is membership of the single market and the customs union... Um, is precisely because of the border here. And if there were no other good reasons to be in the single market and the customs union, that would be good enough for me. But there are plenty of good reasons, frankly, why for every um, part of uh, the United Kingdom that is affected by Brexit, that is very important. As we have gone on through this process, 
I personally think that lots of people have not considered the implications for Northern Ireland of Brexit enough. I think they will have to now. The problem is that the clock has been ticking and there has been too little done, which is why, as, you know, as we're sat here... Now we are facing the situation that we're in where we are supposed to leave, but nobody really knows how we're going to leave. So I think even cabinet ministers know we need to extend the time for Article 50 now and get these very difficult questions sorted out properly in a way that includes the whole of the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland and is not just a conversation dominated by Westminster. I'm a little Pengeli. Well, no, um, but I, I think it's important to say, first of all, that we will be doing everything that we can in the DUP to support the Prime Minister to get a deal and to avoid a hard Brexit. I think the positive about this is that absolutely everybody, all parties have made clear that we do not want a hard border, the UK and the DUP, and that is what we're striving for. I think in the event, uh, and and as I've said, to be avoided, but in the event of a hard uh, Brexit, I do still believe that there are many things that could be done to aid North-South collaboration and cooperation. There are ways that we can try to ensure trade can continue. The common travel area will continue, as we've heard, um, even if there is a a no-deal Brexit. But what I would say is that Sinn Féin and others, including the Scottish Nationalist Party, have been using the challenges and transition of Brexit to try to push their own agenda at this time. I don't think that is helpful. I don't think that is a good thing to throw into the mix, particularly in Northern Ireland. What we need now is for everybody to calm down I believe in the union. I believe the union is good for Northern Ireland. I think the merits of that are very, very strong. I am not picking up from anybody other than those who are nationalists a desire for a border poll. The last thing we need in terms of the uncertainty and the transition of Brexit is the uncertainty and transition of a united Ireland or reunification. You are um, a lawyer, and I wonder, therefore, whether you're at all worried, in the light of what you said, that the Good Friday Agreement says, and I quote directly from this, if at any time it appears likely appears likely that the majority of those voting would express a wish that Northern Ireland should cease to be a part of the United Kingdom, that is the point at which such a poll should be triggered. Is that a high enough bar for you? Well, we've said, and my party leader said this today very clearly, that we do not believe that the tests set out in the Belfast Good Friday Agreement have been met. The people who are shouting loudest about this, of course, are people who always wanted um, a united Ireland. It is Sinn Féin who are pushing for that. I know it is a period of uncertainty. Of course it is. And we do want to try to find resolution to get through that. But, of course... The strengths and the merits of staying within the union of the United Kingdom uh, are there to be made, and I am not picking up that unionist that I know. I have not met a unionist who has indicated to me that they've changed their mind and become somebody who wants the reunification of Ireland. Chris Hazard. Uh, well, I think there's a couple of things uh, to be made here. Uh, I think it's a pertinent question, Michael. Um, and just to clear up, Sinn Féin absolutely are not exploiting Brexit for any green or, or orange issue. That, that's not what Brexit is. Brexit doesn't belong to Sinn Féin. We were very much opposed to Brexit. Brexit is very much the, the baby of the Conservative Party. The Good Friday Agreement is the baby of the people of Ireland. And I think when we look at the situation, which is a no-deal Brexit, and them and others are right to point out that nobody wants it, but we're heading that way by accident or by, or by design. That is where we're headed. And our message is very clear. 
in that instance, people should have the choice. And this is, this, is, this is a part of the Good Friday Agreement. It is there. And we're, all we're saying to the British Prime Minister is you should then return to that agreement to offer people the choice of which union do they want to be a part of. Because there are people out there right across society who are very, very worried about what a no-deal Brexit means for them, for their community, for their business, the, the farming sector. They, they all know that. They're all speaking about that. It's wrong to categorise this simply as a Sinn Féin demand. And again, I, I would point to the Prime Minister herself is on, is on public record as saying when she was trying to sell her deal previously that if it was a hard, day, a hard Brexit then there, that it would be an insatiable demand. Well you can't have it both ways. The Prime Minister is saying that for a reason and that she knows because the appetite for people wanting to stand up for their rights and for the things that they're entitled to under the Good Friday Agreement is jeopardised by Brexit and it is absolutely jeopardised by a hard Brexit. Uh, four nights ago your party leader Mary Lou MacDonald, the President of Sinn Féin said if it cannot be managed in the short term that is the effect mitigated at least of potentially hard uh, border, then you put the question democratically in the hands of the people and allow them to actually remove the border. Uh, abso- and it's effectively what a border poll would amount to if it would go in favour of, yes, of the United ab- States. Yes, absolutely. And, look, and here, look, I'm not going to beat around, beat around the bush here. As an Irish Republican, I very much believe in a unity referendum. Uh, absolutely. I would always, even before Brexit, I would have championed the rights of the Irish people to have their say on that. And especially in the instance of a hard Brexit, we, we have to offer people that opportunity to say, which union do you want to be part of? Do you want to remain a part of the European Union or do you want to be part of the union with Great Britain and, and the north of Ireland who are now hurtling what David McWilliams obviously has said today down, down an isolated rat hole, uh, as, he point, he, as he put it? And I think very many people are worried about that and would like to have their say. And that's all you're offering to people, an opportunity to have their say on the way out of it. Tobias Elwood. Uh, One day, I think, we'll begin any questions without a a question on uh, Brexit. Probably not in our lifetimes. But I (laughs) do think that we are reaching an important juncture, given the the timetable uh, ahead of us. And it was good to hear uh, Leo Vradka, the uh, Prime Minister uh, of Ireland, say a deal can be done. And that is exactly what the Prime Minister is wanting to uh, achieve. We need to recognise we had a vote in Parliament and two outcomes came from the Brady Amendment. Firstly, let's leave with a deal. And if we leave with a deal, there isn't a hard border, and that's absolutely critical. Secondly, let's ensure that the backstop is one that we can avoid being trapped in. And these are the things that we're trying to explore now. It's worth pointing out, it does feel like a long time since uh, uh, we've been debating these things, since the Article 50 letter was put in, what has actually been achieved. 95% of the agreement is there, of the written agreement, is actually agreed. It's over the line. It's one last piece of the jigsaw, this issue to do with the backstop that we need to resolve. If we all make that happen, we have a deal. We can honour what happened in the referendum two years ago, and we can all move forward. And that's where we are. And minds are being focused with uh, the end of March uh, coming forward. There seems to be some unease in Brussels, and perhaps this explains an unwillingness at the moment so far to compromise on this, because we had the meeting earlier in the week with the deputy Brexit negotiator, uh, who said that um, she had found, when she talked to some of your parliamentary colleagues, and when she pushed them on whether if they offered assurances about legally binding potential assurances about the backstop, which they weren't offering, she wasn't in a position to negotiate, but she was sounding them out, she said. And they seemed unsure, I think it was probably a reference to the European Reform Group members, they seemed a bit unsure whether they would vote for it, even in those circumstances, the 
the Brexit uh, deal. So uh, can you be confident, actually, that even if you got these changes, you could get it through the House of Commons? Uh, may I air a bit of frustration with the discussion about the ERG? European Research Group, sorry. Could they are not my party. Uh, I, I, those familiar with that wonderful musical, Hamilton, uh, will be aware of a, a character, Aaron Burr, who's one of the founding fathers, uh, a bit of a, a worrying character because he's not as genuine as some of the others. And, you know, his approach was talk less, smile more, don't let them know what you're fighting for. And I'm not sure what the ERG are fighting for. They seem to want, because in parallel to the Brexit debate, there's this also a battle for the soul of the Conservative Party. They are acting as a party within a party. And the party I signed up to is vibrant, it's dynamic, it's outward-looking, it's inclusive. And so I say to them, many of which I call my friends, individuals, but is it right that they can act as a block, as a hamper on what the Prime Minister is trying to achieve? And I do ask them to fall in line. Back the Prime Minister. Let's get Brexit across the line. Don't be that drag anchor that actually delays Brexit or indeed hampers us from winning the general election because we'll only appeal to our current party base. Can I ask you one other thing which comes up of what Emma Little-Pengeli was saying is she hasn't met unionists who want a border poll, but according to the BBC tonight, it's reporting three different cabinet ministers, all saying in very different terms, that there is a very real possibility and that it's something on the Prime Minister's mind that, as one put it, if we are party to create an environment of chaos, disruption, uncertainty, that could move the dial, and that a vote on unification would be a realistic possibility if the UK leaves the European Union without a deal next month. All the more reason why we need to get a deal. A no deal, a chaotic exit from the European Union would be bad economically, it would be bad socially, and it would be bad from a security perspective as well. This should energise us all to make sure that we do land a deal. Those who are now calling for moving to WTO terms, they don't recognise that, firstly, all our exports will be hit by tariffs. And secondly, you'll end up with a hard border, the very thing the Brexiteers are actually concerned about. This was their project. I voted Remain. I want to stay in the European Union. But I'm a Democrat, and I'm honouring the actual result of the referendum. And I do beseech those in the ERG and otherwise to recognise where we are. Because if we don't support the Prime Minister and get this across the line, you're probably going to move towards an ever softer Brexit or possibly not leaving the European Union at all. Michael Steele, thank you very much for that question. And if you're listening at home and have views on it, Anita Arnand presents uh, Any Answers. That's after the Saturday edition of Any Questions. The lines open at 12.30 on Saturday lunchtime. The number 03700 100 444. You can tweet us as we... Uh, uh, here in uh, Westchurch in Bangor uh, using the hashtag BBC Politi follow us on the hashtag uh, forgive me, start again, using the hashtag BBCAQ or follow us on at BBC Politics and you can text 84844 and I've got it written down in front of me and I still get it wrong <laughs> I'll give you that again, BBCAQ is the hashtag or text us on 84844 I'll give you the number for any answers again during the course of the programme. Let's move on to our next question uh, Trevor Blaney, should someone's prejudice of the past be a reflection of their current values? Are you thinking of Liam Neeson? 
It was influenced by that, yes, yeah. but I think it has a broader perspective. Absolutely. Okay, well, of course, just in the case of Liam Neeson, he's the actor who said uh, earlier this week in an interview for a, uh, his latest kind of revenge uh, thriller film, which he uh, is in, which was due to have its premiere in New York, which was cancelled as a result of this story that he had uh, many years ago when he was in his 20s, been so angry at learning that uh, a friend of his had been raped, uh, apparently by a black man, that he went out... Uh, looking to looking for trouble, looking for violence, determined to attack somebody who was black. Uh, and he said himself, in fact, that he had uh, been shocked when he came to his senses uh, and he had sought help from a priest. But interestingly, he partly blamed, he said, for his anger and his attitude, his experience of growing up in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. Chris Hazard. Yeah, well, I'm still really confused as to what Liam Neeson was even trying to say, or even my take on it. Was he ashamed that was he ashamed of the racism that was inherent in what he was saying, or was he ashamed that he was going to kill somebody? I, I was still really confused as to what he really meant. Um, and we should make absolutely clear that any, any form of racism or anything like that should be condemned entirely. Um, but again, that, that sense of confusion as to, to what he, he was even speaking about. And look, as a society, we know too well, if there's people who are good of, of holding on to our baggage and marking people for life, then, then we're great at it. And, and we need to learn to, to move away from that, I think, uh, especially in this society. Um, day and daily, we still see you know, whole communities being marked and, and what has been happened. And, and it holds us back and it becomes a, it becomes a real noose around our necks. And um, I think we do need to, to move on. But... Yeah, I just think the, the Liam Neeson um, stuff this week has still left me scratching my own head as if um, I think... if I don't know if it was a ploy to, um, to get a bit of attention for the film or anything like that, but I'm sure whatever... He's he, cynic. Yeah, <laughs> but it's certainly backfired massively if that is the situation, but uh, it, it just struck me as a really odd and confusing episode. Alison McGovern. I, I would agree with Chris, it was quite seriously confusing, but I think if there's a broader point, it's probably that in life, if you get something wrong and you're prepared to own that uh, situation, apologise, <coughs> and not just kind of use the words, I'm sorry. And I think we see this in politics sometimes. People will say, I'm sorry, but I think the public can work out whether or not it's meant. And that's often to do with a person's um, actions afterwards and whether they sh- they're prepared to show understanding. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the Liverpool footballer, John Barnes, was, I thought, very open in talking about it and saying, actually, we do have to have the hardest of conversations about this, that people will have done and thought things um, that they then come to realise are wrong. And maybe it's, it's helpful if people do talk about that. So I think uh, people's past you know, oughtn't to determine their future, but their actions in relation to their past certainly will. Um, He put it... (laughs) Emma Little-Pengeli, he put it this way, he says... um, talking about, obviously, these events from Lead Forge years ago. He says, I was brought up in the North Islands, brought up in the Troubles. There was a war going on in the North Island, and I had acquaintances who were involved in the Troubles. The bigotry, one Catholic would be killed, the next day a Protestant would be killed, one Catholic pub would be bombed, a Protestant pub would be bombed. I grew up surrounded by that. I was never part of it. But he was shocked by what he called this desire to stand up for my dear friend in this terrible medieval fashion. What did you read into it? Because he got attacked for saying it, uh, and obviously criticised for having felt it, but he himself seemed to be saying he was ashamed of what he'd felt. 
Yes, I think there's a number of interesting and, and as indicated, baffling um, aspects of this. I think partly he has been misquoted or partly quoted um, in terms of what he has said. I think when you listen to what, everything that he said, he had indicated that he was ashamed of, of that, that he regretted the, those emotions. Um, however, I agree that I think it's a strange thing for him to say. We're not quite sure what he was, was aiming uh, to get across on it. But I think there's lots of evidence there to show that basic human psychology, that we are all, um, we, we all stereotype, we all have assumptions and presumptions. And it's not just across racism or sectarianism. And that is something I think all of us need to acknowledge and challenge on a day-to-day basis. If we don't believe that we have prejudices or assumptions and presumptions, I think we are partly part of the problem. I think acknowledging that but recognising that that is wrong and being able to move on <coughs> is absolutely key in, in terms of, of reconciliation, in terms of trying to break these down in society. I think what has been disappointing about this is that by him telling the story and acknowledging that it was wrong and he has learnt from that and he's moved on, in fact, he hasn't been, that hasn't been recognised. He's actually been criticised for being racist and having those instincts. We all have those instincts, in my view. We need to acknowledge those and we need to do better. And when we know better, we do better. And, and we are seeing this in our dialogue at the moment, particularly around political dialogue, where people are being criticised, particularly on social media, not just criticised, but hated. Should you be a Brexiteer or a Remainer? Should you be DUP or Sinn Féin? Whatever the category that you are placed in, there's a lot of hate because you're in that category. So we all have that, and I just think we all need to challenge that within ourselves on a day-by-day basis so that we can collectively as a society do better. Tobias Elwood. Well, Churchill famously said, I'm, I would be nothing if it wasn't for the mistakes that I made. And he learned from it. And there are so many angles on this particular story. I'm not even sure whether this was a, a, a plot by Hollywood themselves to promote the movie. It is difficult to pick it apart and say what is actually going on here. It is disturbing that somebody would harbour these uh, thoughts so many years ago. But is there a sense of honesty Uh, because they've actually stepped forward. It's very difficult to interpret this. I suppose my wider concern is, is firstly, the ability in modern-day politics to put your hand up to say, I did say something in the past, or I've even said something at the moment, and I'm sorry, and then we draw a line on it. Or are you forever haunted by it? Are you ever punished and penalised because of it? And therefore, you end up people not wishing to step forward, not wishing to be uh, away from the crowd or be a bit um, uh, more avant-garde with what they think. And that worries me slightly. And it also bleeds into the other aspect of education. We can easily see how if we don't continue pursuing the importance of education, of upholding the United Kingdom's values that we have, rule of law, democratic values, the rights and the standards, the moral uh, direction of travel that we've taken, how easy we can fall off that and how easily we can return to a very dangerous space. And in the arena of politics, we're seeing this a little bit in elections where we're playing, or it's been seen you play on fear, that you actually charge somebody to say, I'm going to tap into your fears and I'm going to blame somebody for them, so elect me. And that really is not why I came into politics, and it's very difficult. We saw this in the American elections particularly. So lots of questions here, but something I think from an education perspective we need to keep working on. 
Thank you. I'll give the last one, I think, to Jan Moore in the Daily Mail, who sort of uh, gets at something you were hinting at. He certainly committed a terrible sin by Hollywood standards, she wrote this week. The ultimate sin, perhaps, the definitive transgression. When asked a question, he tried to tell the truth. <laughs> Thank you for that, Trevor. Uh, let's move on to our third question, please. Good evening. Rita Ray. How long will it be before Westminster bring in direct rule because we are desperate for leadership? So the... Northern Ireland Assembly suspended now for two years, uh, and it's uh, nearly two years, and it's more than two years since uh, the late uh, Martin McGuinness, the Deputy First Minister, walked out uh, and effectively <coughs> brought power sharing to an end. Um, Emma Little-Pengelly, how long are they going to have to wait? Well, I was in the Northern Ireland Assembly at that time um, when there was the walkout and, and the subsequent collapse, and there was nothing that we could do at that stage to keep uh, the Assembly from collapsing because that was a decision, that's the mechanisms that we have, that if uh, the Deputy First Minister resigned, then the entire thing would come down. I have been deeply disappointed that we haven't been able to get those institutions back up and going. There's been a number of processes and a number of talks. These issues are very difficult in terms of the Irish Language Act and other associated issues. I think some would also speculate that perhaps Sinn Féin do not want to go back into government at the minute, particularly with Brexit and other ongoing uh, issues. Uh, but what I can say is that we are absolutely committed to getting the institutions back up and going. And we've said we are prepared to go to the Northern Ireland Assembly on Monday morning. We're not asking for anything. There's no preconditions. And we made an offer, and, and my party leader made an offer, of saying, look, we'll give some guarantees about this. If we can't get agreement within this in a specified period of time, then the Northern Ireland Assembly would uh, end again. We would go back to the polls. But give us the space to be able to talk through these difficult issues while delivering public services for people. Because it is people in terms of education and health that are not getting the services they need because we can't get agreement with Sinn Féin to go back into government. We're not asking for anything. No preconditions. We're prepared to go into government. Monday morning, we'll be there. Will Sinn Féin. I'm going to keep you guess, waiting for an answer to that, but Rita's question in some ways is posed very directly to government, uh, Tobias Elwood. Mm. How long before Westminster imposes direct rule? Because two years without uh, devolved government at a time when Northern Ireland is at the kind of centre of one of the most important political issues facing not just the UK but the Ireland of Ireland as no, well. I understand that and I think the passion that we're hearing um, in this uh, church here today actually reflects that. I think people want to get back to having the democratically accountable assembly up and running. But it does require all the parties to come together. I know Karen Bradley, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, is committed to trying to make uh, that happen. We want to honour the Belfast, the Good Friday Agreement, but it does require the parties to actually come together. And until that happens, um, then Karen will continue working on it. I suspect in the time frame of mind that the, focal, the, the focus will come um, on the other side of, of March when we can actually reinvigorate this. But I absolutely agree and fully re uh, respect the frustration that you've had because of two years now is a very, very long time indeed. Um, I should... One of our listeners, uh, Steve Brooks, uh, who's uh, tweeted us with hashtag BBCAQ, you'd have to be pretty bloody desperate to want direct rule from dysfunctional Westminster, he says. <laughs> but notwithstanding that... <laughs> and if you disagree, you can join us on any answers. Alison McGovern. 
Oh dear. Um, <laughs> the when Tobias says the other side of March, I wish it were so. I wish that Brexit will be dealt with by the other side of March because I I do think and I and I hear exactly the need for leadership um, that Rita uh, has in her question and I I understand that. I don't think Brexit is going to be done by the other side of March, partly because cabinet ministers are now saying, as I said before, that we're going to need to extend Article 50 because we just can't get this over the line. But also because even if Westminster were to agree the um, document on the future framework of our relationship with the European Union, even if we were to agree it on Monday, there's so many unanswered questions in it we are going to be discussing this for years and years to come, which is one of the reasons why, from the backbenches, we have tried to get the Prime Minister to come back to the House of Commons time and again to try to force her to bring this to a head. Because if she can't get agreement in her own party about Brexit, then get it across the House of Commons. You know, reach across the House of Commons and try and find agreement that way is what I would say, because I think that that helps to stabilise the situation and could hopefully um, bring things to a head because, you know, we want to move forward as a country and we won't be able to do so until we know what the future holds in terms of Brexit. Chris Hazard, um, it was your party that pulled the plug two years ago. Um, since then, Northern Ireland has become the longest country without a government in peacetime. That was in August last year. So it's by some way now beating Belgium, which previously held the record at a mere 541 days. I mean, the salaries have been cut and they will be cut again from this month mm-hmm. down from 49,000 to 35,000. And yet that on its own doesn't seem to have changed the political dynamic. Why not take up Emma Little Pengelly's offer? Uh, because it's not genuine. Um, the, the DUP. Okay. Well, the DUP have plenty of preconditions, and let's not let's not be naive about that. Um, the, the Secretary of State and Theresa May has absolutely no plan for restoring devolution. That was clear this week when we met them. They're in hack to the DUP at Westminster. So, for example, when a number of parties, not just Sinn Féin, but a number of parties were calling for the Assembly wages to be docked a long time ago, uh, it was the DUP at Westminster who prevented that. And let's not forget why the Assembly collapsed in the first place. We were dealing with serious allegations of financial corruption. We were dealing in a massive, a massive breach... This was over the renewable heat incentive scheme, which ended up costing a lot more than originally planned. We absolutely. haven't got time to go into no, all I'm the not detail. No, I'm absolutely not going to go yeah. into it, but we have that them serious allegations of corruption. But we also have a, a rot at the very centre of government, a lack of integrity, a disrespect for the rights and the entitlements of minorities and people who lived here. And that is not the basis of power sharing government here in the north. And what we said at the time was, you're living in a fool's paradise if you think that this will be allowed to continue... And I'm sorry, that still stands today. You have to respect. You can't talk to people the way some ministers and some members were talking to members of our society. That simply cannot be tolerated today, and it won't be tolerated. So what are you saying to people here who clearly felt very strongly when they heard the question talking about the the lack of leadership? At the same time, we want to see it. We are a party of dialogue. We want to talk and to get this. But I am afraid the DUP at the minute do not have the bandwidth to deal with this. I, I believe they are convulsed with Brexit and the going-ons of Westminster. They have checked out to Westminster, and that's where we're at. We're ready to talk tomorrow, but it is going to take talking. And remember, there was a deal on the table this time last year. The DUP could not sell that deal to their hardliners, much like Theresa May can't sell 
the deal now to the DUP on Brexit. There's an irony there somewhere. Rita Ray, you asked the question, what do you think of the responses? Well, I'd just like to say that I'm a great Democrat, but as far as I'm concerned, the people of Northern Ireland gave the DUP and Sinn Féin, and that's in alphabetical order, by the way, gave them a mandate to rule our country and look after our country. And I don't think they have done that. And I think it's a disgrace. And I hope that when we vote again, that they think long and hard before they vote for either of your parties. Thank you very much for the question. Views, of course, if you have them. Any answers presented by Anita Arnand just after the Saturday edition of this programme. Lines open at 12.30, the number 03700 100 444. Our next question, please. Good evening, uh, Andrew Muir. Welcome to Bangor, an integral part of the United Kingdom. Why can't the people here not enjoy the same rights as the rest of the United Kingdom? I take it that you are referring... both to abortion, where the Abortion Act of 1967 has never applied, and also to same-sex marriage. Yes, I am indeed. Thank you very much. Um, Alison McGovern. They should, is my simple, is my, uh, is my simple answer. Um, I'm a big um, fan of devolution. I would like to see much more devolution right across um, England, which has, you know... N- not nearly enough devolution. However, that doesn't affect people's fundamental human rights, in my view. And I think that uh, women's healthcare rights are extraordinarily important, and where they're not upheld, there are the most significant of consequences, as we've seen um, in, in, in the media, as to what can happen when those rights are not upheld. So um, I think that they should be. Um, and, you know, I have a lot of sympathy with, uh, particularly with, um, with women campaigners in, in Northern Ireland who make that call. I'm a little Pengeli because it's, it's your party that gets criticised a lot on, on these questions, uh, particularly same-sex marriage because of the way the Assembly uh, voted on that. What's your explanation as your party is a party that's committed to the union for difference? Well, I think across the United Kingdom there are a number of policy areas that, of course, are devolved. And they're devolved, and they're devolved for a reason, to recognise the particular views of those particular regions. It happens to be that a number of those particularly controversial issues at the moment are devolved issues, and therefore they do fall to the Northern Ireland Assembly for a decision. The DUP have had a parliamentary position in relation to both of these matters. We've been very clear about that. People have been very clear about that when they vote uh, and support us. Uh, But in all of these things, if you look at the termination of pregnancy, the overwhelming democratic vote within the Northern Ireland Assembly across both communities up until this point has been uh, to support no change in relation to that. Now, that may not be the case when we go back to the Northern Ireland Assembly, but it's one of the reasons why the Northern Ireland Assembly needs to come back to discuss those issues. Uh, so these issues are strong views right across uh, the community. Um, those discussions are continuing, but the Northern Ireland Assembly do need to deal with these and it needs to get back to discuss these. 
Just on that question of abortion, there is a current case in the High Court. This is the case of Sarah Ewart, who was denied an abortion in 2013. The doctor said her baby wouldn't survive outside the wound because it, it was effectively um, had developed without a skull. Um, she eventually had a termination in England, one of about, I think, 880 women at the last count in 2017 who travelled to England and Wales from Northern Ireland for an abortion. The law has changed south of the border, and... Judging, but it was, this case was dismissed on technicality last time because the organisation that brought it didn't have legal standing. But the judges there already indicated that they were likely to find in favour and say this breaches European Convention on Human Rights. That's going to put DUP in a very difficult position, isn't it? Well, I think, first of all, in talking about these issues, and I know the, that case in particular, they are deeply sensitive. Uh, and I'm always very aware about that in terms of talking about in a political sphere. And I have huge sympathy for anybody that goes through this, and I've heard uh, Sarah speak about this. So I want to say that very, very clearly. Um, the, the broader issue um, in terms of the legal case is a very interesting one, because if the court does decide this, this will be the first time that determination of pregnancy issue albeit on this very specific um, life-limiting conditions, or as some people call it, fatal-fetal abnormality, that will be the first time that a court has ruled this to be a rights-based issue. Now, that will have impact not just in Northern Ireland and the UK, but actually will have horizontal impact in terms of the European Convention of Human Rights right across the European Union and those who are signed up to that. So this is a very significant case. Um, There was a report done um, in relation to life-limiting conditions and in the case of rape and uh, incest. That report uh, was reporting to the Minister of Health in the Northern Ireland Assembly, and it was to be discussed by the Northern Ireland Assembly. Uh, But that can't happen because the Assembly is not there. So I do believe this is an issue that can be discussed and would be resolved by the Northern Ireland Assembly, I have to say, if the Assembly could get back up and going. But of course, we will be watching that case, but my sympathy does go out to any woman who is impacted by this. Chris Hazard. Uh, we, we know the reasons why it is the case, um, and that reason is very short. It's the DUP, uh, and that's just to be blunt about it, and it very much is the case. Um, because if it wasn't for the DUP, then I believe the British government would move immediately to make sure that this issue was dealt with. And I fully believe in the absence of devolved government that the British and Irish governments, through the British Irish Intergovernmental Conference, should make uh, space to tackle all these issues. It is absolutely unacceptable that a member of the gay community in these islands can get married everywhere else bar here and that a woman can go for modern health care anywhere else bar here. That is simply not acceptable in the 21st century and it needs to be addressed. You would accept it's an issue even within Sinn Féin. There are many practicing Catholics it's, in Sinn Féin who are deeply uneasy at any thought of changing it's, the abortion. It's not, an, it's not an issue. We have a policy and that policy is very, very clear. There's people with different views. There's, there's people with different views, of course, but political parties have policies and you implement policy. Um, I was very proud when David Cameron put forward um, the, the proposal uh, for equal marriage. And, um, but in fairness to Alison, I think had you been in power at the time, then you would have done probably and, and, the and same And also thing. in fairness to the Labour Party, it did take Labour votes to pass it. Uh, well, I'm not going <laughs> to Let's not go back to the ERG. I think I've said enough about them already. The point, though, is, is that there was... I remember there was a debate in France, there was a debate in other countries at the time... And there were many people that were against it, but there was an advancement. There was a modernisation. There was a moving forward. And that's how society uh, exists. That's how democracy uh, actually is honoured. You ignore that. You ignore the democratic process. And you end up in a worst-case situation, such as a country like Venezuela. 
So much as I'd love to say I would like X, Y, or Z to take place here, it is a devolved matter. And the same reason why I had to support um, uh, the, uh, uh, the moving away from the European Union, um, even though I was a Remainer, I'm a Democrat. And this has been a devolved matter. I simply urge uh, those involved to see what we can do to get the, uh, the Assembly back up and running so these matters can be debated thoroughly as they should be. Thank you very much. Let's move on. I'm Jeremy Eaves. Is social media the cause of many sorts of harmful behaviour, or does it just expose the nastiness present in many of the values of our society? Jeremy, thank you very much. And, of course, the debate, particularly this week, now that Instagram has said it's going to start removing some self-harm images uh, because it's concerned that it may be encouraging that. And we've talked endlessly and rightly about the impact of trolling on this programme before. Um, Chris Hazard. I'm sure it's multicausal. It's, I would presume it's also like a chicken and egg situation. But it certainly creates an arena. Uh, at times a very toxic arena as a public representative I know it um, I, I, and I can ensure people that the best thing they can do is start blocking people who are being nasty <laughs> and never be in two minds uh, it is something that can, it certainly gives you relief at times because some of the abuse and I've, I've also noticed some of the abuse that female political representatives take is just absolutely unacceptable the way that people speak to some people and again we're in an arena today where people think you can say it and there's no repercussions. And I think there needs to be a bigger responsibility now on some of these platforms to look after. They are legally responsible for this and they need to be doing it. But also political representatives increasingly now today in today's world need to take responsibility for their actions. Just tonight, we, you know, my party have had to report a local councillor in my particular area for really petty, offensive remarks that he should know better and not be making. But that, unfortunately, is a situation. Um, you know, someone mentioned Donald Trump earlier. That's the era that we live in. But unfortunately, the consequences, and if you go into any school nowadays and you talk to a principal or teachers about bullying, that the role that that is now in in social media and into self-harm and everything, it is a massive crisis that we need to deal with. And the big pressure now has to come on some of these big companies um, who are very, very wealthy. They have the resources to tackle this, as they simply don't want to tackle at the minute, I think. And pressure needs to now come on them. Yeah, I, I agree with what Chris just said on pressure, but I mean, I think, I think the answer, Jeremy, is there can be um, awful things done and said, um, and yes, I think in, in some cases it, it can be quite revealing about what's out there. Um, I think particularly of Diane Abbott, um, first black woman, member of parliament, um, Labour, has suffered through her career the most horrific abuse. What young black women must think about going into politics when they see how Diane Abbott is spoken about sometimes, I don't know. Um, and actually, I think some of that social media abuse sometimes actually leaks through into you know, politics proper. And that is incredibly uh, bad, and it's got to be tackled. It's got to be dealt with properly by social media companies. But I just want to say something positive as well, that actually... It's not all bad, because um, sometimes social media does have the capacity to allow people to portray themselves in the way that they want to. So I think of the body positive movement that says, you know, that women of all sizes can be beautiful and people really challenging what the image of beauty is for men and women. So I think used in the right way, it is possible for social media to be a positive force uh, in our country as well as a negative. Tobias Elwood. 
I grew up, um, I was, the first computer I used was called the ZX81. <laughs> Some of you might remember it. And Indeed. we had one in our school, and it was the single device in the school. And you think how the world has actually changed. And the tr- struggle that we are dealing with at the moment, aside from the laws or the legislation that needs to be put into place, is the fact that the pace of change is actually happening so quick we actually can't keep up with it. As parents, as grandparents, we can't look back and say, I did this, because it didn't exist when we were children. And my you know, five-year-old is telling me how to do things on the computer which I don't fully understand myself. And that's a sad indictment. As not just me, but we'll actually... that when they make these sections <laughs> safe for culture, digital and media. Um, but, and this is the challenge that we face. But I would absolutely agree with Alison that this is... Firstly, there are absolute positives from this. And it's not going away. So as society, we need to establish what those new norms should be. My children, they get half an hour on a Saturday and a half an hour on a Sunday to use their iPads. And that is it. It is banned during the week. Now, we can't be in the case where you hand these these, uh, items out just to keep kids quiet. We, all of us, must learn to adapt and have them in our lives, but in a responsible (coughs) way. And be aware of what is actually going on, because the horrible case of Molly Russell is every parent's nightmare. And so it's important that we all advance with this and set the societal rules uh, that will actually work today. Thank you. Emma Little-Pengeli. Yeah, I think that the world of social media, absolutely agree. It has exploded in terms of all of the different types of applications and the things that they can do. And we are literally living in a world of smoke and mirrors in terms of photographs and the way that those can be doctored. And I feel that there's two sets of problems. You know, the first one is very much with young people. Um, I agree that you know they're being bombarded 24/7. You know, somebody said to me that you know young people used to be able to go to school. They would come back, be able to switch off. They would be in their house. They would be in their home in a secure space. Now young people come back and they're constantly seeing their friends, perhaps a bullying or anything else on a device. And I think that there's huge mental health risks with that. And I think we're seeing that sadly. So we do need to catch up. I think Twitter. Um, Facebook, the social media companies need to start being much more responsible. I think there's a very particular issue as well about the trolling and abuse of people in public life. Um, I do see it roll. I think it is um, starting to to, to roll over into um, everyday life as well. Um, and I've always said to people, if you wouldn't come up and say it to somebody's face, you shouldn't be saying it behind a computer screen. Um, and it does cause hurt. Everybody is human. The strongest people I know, they're still human and they still can be hurt by nasty comments or people harassing people by constantly making the same point. I, I have got um, harassed um, and trolled relentlessly on, on social media. I made a decision after Christmas to simply stop and start really just taking myself off Twitter because I think the anonymous nature of that means that it it encourages people to be able to go on and just get more and more nasty. And what does it achieve? It doesn't achieve anything. I could be spending my time trying to do something positive, not listening and reading that type of thing. That's that's a very good point on which to end tonight's edition. And I'm very pleased to say thank you to all of those 
who tweeted us uh, on the programme for being very civilised in their language uh, and, and not being offensive at all. Thank you very much for joining us for Any Questions from Bangor. Uh, don't forget any answers after the Saturday edition of Any Questions. The number 03700 100 444. Anita Anand is there and poised. The line's open at 12.30. Next week, Jonathan will be at Nantgwithane Centre in Clithane in Wales, including on the panel Adam Price from Plaid Cymru. For all of us in Bangor, goodbye. I hope you enjoyed any questions this week. To find out more about the programme or how you can get us to come to your area, then go to the BBC Radio 4 website and search for any questions.